This morning, we'll be continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. We'll be beginning with the first five verses of chapter two. Before we get into that, for those who are joining for the first time or perhaps suffer with their short-term memory, I'm going to give us a, a review of what it is that we've learned so far from Paul's precious letter to the church at Ephesus. The first two verses, Paul begins his letter with a warm greeting. He greets the sinners made saints in Ephesus. He refers to them as the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then beginning at verse 3, Paul begins a remarkable doxology, a hymn of praise that may likely have been sung in the early church that helps us understand the grace of God shown to us through Christ Jesus. That hymn of praise, starting at verse 3, takes us through, and it helps us understand not only the reality of the grace that we've been given as New Covenant believers, but also the character of the God who would redeem and rescue us. We saw in verse 4 that that God chose us, which shows that he is sovereign. We saw in verse 5 that he predestined us, which shows that he's eternal. We see in in verse 7 that we have forgiveness. Shows that he's gracious. We see throughout this that he is our father, which shows that he has adopted us as sons. And we read of our rich inheritance, what we have been given by God in Christ Jesus, that shows that he is generous and gracious with us. All of that is a resounding doxology that would have caused and should cause us to sing praises. Then at verse 15, Paul transitions from this, the song of doxology to a prayer of thanksgiving. In this, he tells the church that even after years away from them, he doesn't stop praying for them. He doesn't stop thanking God for them. And above all, his prayer for them is that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened that they would be given a spirit of wisdom and that they would understand the grace extended to them through Christ Jesus. All of this for the praise of God's glorious grace. All of chapter one is meant to be a a song of praise to remind the church of what God has done for them. If we think of this musically, a doxology is is joyful and exuberant and the prayer may have had tones of, of joy but solemnity. But as we begin this week's chapter, the symphony changes tones. The instruments are are stringed instruments and maybe it's a little bit of a somber tone. And Paul wants to remind the believers at Ephesus what it was that they were saved from. And it's not to take them back to a place that they would feel a sense of guilt, but that they would cherish all the more what it is that Christ has accomplished on their behalf. And so that's where we're gonna begin our study. Paul's gonna bring us low so that he can bring us up, so that we can rejoice in what Christ has done on our behalf. Would you please stand with me for the reading of the first five verses of Ephesians chapter two? The word of God says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Father God, would you allow the eyes of our heart to be enlightened this morning? Would you speak to us and grant us wisdom that we would understand what you have accomplished on our behalf? Remind us, Lord God, what you have saved us from and what you have saved us for, for the renown of your name and so that we know that you are Lord. God, for any in our midst this morning that have yet to have their hearts quickened, Lord God, would you use me as your instrument to declare with clarity what it is you have done on our behalf. Quiet our hearts, prepare our minds to receive what you have communicated to us through your holy word. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul begins this portion of of scripture with a change in tone. He says, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul's reminding the church at Ephesus what they were before God breathed new life into them. See, this is a a scriptural truth that, that our church teaches with regularity. It's not a popular one. We want to hear all of the truths of how God is love and God is grace and God is mercy, but we cannot appreciate that unless we understand that we are deader than a doornail. It's not that we were just weak or that we were sick or that we were blind or that we were deaf. We were dead, incapable of communicating with God. Not only that, we didn't even know we were dead. Death is an interesting thing. In scripture, there's clear messages both about physical death and about spiritual death. As far as physical death goes, we know that it's appointed for each man to die and after that, the judgment. We also know that we as human beings have an incredible ability to ignore death. So recently at a Ligonier conference and they joked around about the American heresy. The American heresy is that everyone else will die except me. Aren't we good at ignoring our own mortality sometimes? Aren't we we good at ignoring the fact that in any given moment, the breath that has been lent to us by a sovereign God could be taken away? And in that same way, in our spiritual deadness, we ignore the fact that we were born dead. We were born without an ability to draw near to God. As Paul lays out this argument, he uses a couple of things as as evidence of that spiritual deadness. He uses two words. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now he does this. There's a couple of different theories as to why Paul uses two different words here. One of the ideas is that trespass might be a, a sin of commission. For those of us who have been in the church for a while, a sin of commission is something that you willfully do to disobey God. And then a sin might be something of of omission, something that we should have done, but we didn't do. Like in the book of James, he who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So one possible view is that Paul uses trespasses and sins to help us make that distinction. 
Another possibility is that Paul uses both of these to lay out the emphasis and to call to perfect clarity to the fact that we're dead. We were dead in your bad and your, in your evil. Your trespasses and your sins, he's using it like a superlative. That's just how dead you are. I'll present to you a slightly different view of this, and this helps us understand the theme of, of unity in the church that Paul wants us to have. First, he uses the word trespass. The word trespass would refer to a, a, pe- a group of people who have God's written law, a sign, like a trespassing sign, that you've seen and ignored and stepped right past. That's trespassing. That is willfully breaking the law. Who was given the law? The Jewish people, right? And then the second word that he uses is sins. In Galatians chapter two, Paul refers to the Jews and then he refers to everybody else as Gentile sinners. So the view that I would present to you this morning is that when Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses, he's referring to the Jewish part of the church. And then he says the sins, he's referring to the Gentile parts of the church. The church. Either way, what we gather out of this is that he's referring to everybody. Everybody is in the same boat. Before God, under his wrath. Apart from God, dead in sin and incapable of drawing near to God. The Jewish people a little bit closer because they had the word of God? No. They're under greater condemnation. Willful breaking of the law. The Gentile sinners, were they any less qualified to receive God's grace because they were sinners? No, both on a level and even playing field. What's more, it's important for us to understand as we go through the book of Ephesians together that that we as elders intentionally looked at this book of the Bible as a place to, to reset and recenter and build upon the solid foundation of doctrine that is taught at Pacific Hope Church. This passage is one that underscores the doctrine of total depravity. If we ask somebody in a different context, are people basically good or basically bad? What's the popular answer? Basically good. You can go to a number of churches that will tell us that, yes, sin's a problem, but basically we're image bearers. We're good people. What does Ephesians tell us? Did did God just kind of give us a little nudge in the right direction and then we continue to draw closer to him? No, we were dead. He did it all through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. A quote that I want to share with you, this is from a book called Paul, Missionary Theologian makes the statement, no other human condition, if it is not human depravity, moral inability, and real guilt before God, justifies the need for the cross and the doctrines of grace. This is it right here. This is why we preach so emphatically what we preach, because it's nothing that we've done. It's all Christ on our behalf. We'll come back to that more in a minute, but Paul continues to take the believers at Ephesus back to what it is that they've been rescued from. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The title of today's sermon is is Dead Man Walking, right? Dead in our, our trespasses, dead in our sins, oblivious to the fact that we need God. If you don't know what I mean, you haven't looked around recently. There are dead men walking all around us, driven as verse three says, by the desires of the body 
and of the mind. This past week, I had the opportunity to take a, a business trip to Manhattan, a place that I've never been before. I've never seen so many people in one place at one time. But what was completely evident is that the dead men walking were all around me. Didn't, didn't matter, you walk down a street and you follow a flow of people going in one direction. And the, the temptations of this world are on every corner. Bars, luxury goods, drugs, sex, all the things of this world, people pursue naturally because that is their nature. Dead, without God, separated from God, seeking to serve themselves. Moving on in verse two, Paul says, in which you once walked following the course of this world. This is an interesting expression and I didn't understand it. So I did a little bit of research and, and the idea of, of the course is something that happens really naturally. The river follows its course to the sea. The sun follows its course in the sky. It goes from, from dawn to dusk and again. The course of the seasons Spring gives way to summer and summer to fall and fall to winter. It's natural. In the context of the, the people of Ephesus, the societal flow, everything centered around worship of Diana. The temple was the biggest and most prominent thing in the society of that day. And the flow of even the streets of the city of Ephesus, architectural ruins, help us understand that the course, that which was most natural, was for people to flow in and walk past that idolatry. And for us, it's no different, again, thinking of the streets of, of an American city. What is it that, that we move towards? We move towards materialism and pleasure of flesh and all these things that we want. As I walked through Manhattan, I made a very poor choice on where I booked my hotel, and it was much further from where I needed to be. I ended up walking quite a few miles, and you know what I didn't walk past? A church. A church, naturally, our desires and our tendencies take us to all these things that give us pleasure in our, in our flesh, in our body, in our mind. But we don't seek God unless he's breathed new life into us. Jesus explains this really clearly, the following of the course of the air in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he says, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. That's the path of least resistance. That's what course we would have been on had God not intervened on our behalf through Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to explain that what the church has been freed from isn't just that natural following of a course, but that there's actually something spiritual going on here. Look what he says. He says, following the prince of the power of the air. This is an interesting expression that required a little bit of digging in as well. The, the people in Paul's day were highly spiritual. Both the Jews and the Gentiles had different views of demonic activity, but neither ignored its reality. For the Jewish people, the expression that's here would have called to mind the, the, the Lord of the Flies, the idea here is that there is a, a particular deity that is mentioned in 1 Kings, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Elijah chastises the king of Israel and says, Is there no God in Israel that you would go down and consult Baal Zebub 
the God of Ekron. It's a Canaanite God, one of the, one of the Baals. Baal means Lord, and the Zebub part means that he's flying. He moves from one place to another. Paul calls to mind that same vocabulary, and he says, the prince of the power of the air. And this is a, a reality of our spiritual adversary. Just like we see in the book of Job, he moves from one place to another. He is not like our God who is omnipresent. He is not the king of kings. He's a, he's a prince. He's a lower power. He is subject to God's sovereign hand. He moves nowhere without God's express permission. But the, the Jewish people had a fascination with this Lord of the Flies, this particular demonic presence that was ranking over others. And in fact, they had such an intrigue with it that they would falsely call out what was this demon. In fact, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, we find that the, the Jewish people in Jesus' day falsely accused Jesus of acting under the power of the prince of, of demons. Starting at verse 14 of Luke chapter 11. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what Christ is declaring in that moment. The Jewish people are like, this casting out of demons thing, this has to be something to do with the prince of the power of the demons, the prince of the power of the air. And Jesus sets it right. He says, but if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come. And it had come, amen? Now you ask yourselves, why are we talking about the devil during a, a time that our focus is to be on Christ, the risen Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Why does he get any, any pulpit time, right? Thanks for asking. <laughs> so there's a bunch of different extremes in churches. Years ago, some of you might remember the Frank Peretti books, right? That over-spiritualized and gave far too much credence to our spiritual adversary. There might be a demon in your chair that's causing you to sleep during the sermon and all sorts of crazy ideas that don't fit in. But I can tell you that the, the doctrines of who our spiritual adversary are must be preached in order that Christ might be worshipped and exalted. Brother Ty helped us start out our study on Ephesians, looking at a, an account in Acts chapter 19. And I'd invite you to turn there as well. For those of you who weren't with us on that Sunday, as we began this series, Paul is in, wait for it, in Ephesus. And he has given us in the book of Acts a rich account of what transpired in Ephesus. I'll begin reading at verse 11. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. 
Then some of the itinerant, itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom this evil spirit the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, pay careful attention to verses 17 and 18. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. You see, we talk about the, the spiritual victory accomplished by Christ, and in that, he is worshiped. His name is extolled. And going on from there, verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of them who had practiced the magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So as Paul begins these first verses of chapter two and he says, you once were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is what some of these trespasses and sins look like. Dark spiritual crafts, witchcraft even. But they'd followed along with their natural desires following the course of the world. But then in the name of Jesus, for the glory of the name of Jesus, they were revealed from that demonic power. So a couple of reasons why we talk about our spiritual adversary as a body of believers. One is so that Christ's name would be extolled and he would be worshiped. Secondly, it's important for those of us who have come to understand new life in Christ that we have a lot of dead people in our lives that we love. We have people that are a part of, of our families, part of our workplaces, a part of our neighborhoods that we desire to have a saving encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we talk to them about Christ, blank stares. It doesn't make sense. The spiritual man understands these things, but the one who is dead doesn't perceive them. I'd like to share with you a, a quote from a, a book by William Gurnall. One of the sisters in church here recommended this to me. I've gotten partway through it, but this quote is an incredible statement of how our adversary affects those that we love and that we desire to come to salvation. Here's what he says. Those in darkness have no power to resist Satan. He rules the whole man, shaping his apprehensions and distorting his perceptions. If he reads the scriptures, Satan stands by with his own running commentary, twisting the truth into a maze of lies. If he shows any distaste for sin, Satan has him view it through the rose-colored glasses of compromise. And while the sinner may think his insight is greatly improved, in truth, he remains under manifold delusions. In fact, Satan is so gracious in lending this or that instrument of righteousness that he is often taken for a friend rather than a cruel master. That's the prince of the power of the air that we were once under and would have been under if not for the grace of God in Christ. Thirdly, I'll tell you that one of the reasons that we have to talk about the spiritual adversary is because we're at war with him. 
By this point, church, we ought to know this. Has it felt a little bit like a war these days? You know what? It's going to continue to feel that way. You know why? Because the, the scripture promises us that. We've established for you that the first three chapters of Ephesians are, are really about doctrine. They're really about theology. They're really about understanding who God is and who we are. But the, the bottom half of the book of Ephesians is where the rubber meets the road. What are we supposed to do with all this doctrine? I'd invite you to sneak preview and go to Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. And I'm going to read this to you from the New King James Version. <clears throat> Sean gave us some NASB. We're going to do some ESV. Maybe we'll get a little NIV in there later, right? Probably not. <laughs> Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says this, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Church, we have to understand that we do have an adversary. While we're, we're not going to be passing out Frank Peretti books, we also can't just pretend like Satan is the bully that if we ignore him, he'll go away. This is war. What we are experiencing as a church, the course of the world all around us, the prince of the power of the air, we need to be aware. But be not fearful. As we move away from, from talking about our adversary, when we go back to talking about our, our risen Savior, the words of the Savior in Luke chapter 10 should draw our attention. The 72 were sent out to do the gospel work that they were given to do, much like us. And, and they came back with some interesting observations about the spiritual warfare that they undertook. Look what Luke tells us. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, there's our spiritual victory. It's for this reason that we extol the name of Christ. Not because we've been given power over Satan, although we have, but because our names are written in heaven. I also want to make one last important distinction. A brother in church recently asked me, a little bit about Satan and what the role of, of our spiritual adversary might be in the life of the believer. And I want to be perfectly clear on this. Satan will still accuse the believer. Satan will still tempt the believer, but he will not possess nor have dominion over the believer. Rejoice in that our, our salvation and our victory has been secured because of what Christ did on our behalf. Returning to our, our key text in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 continues on, and, and we've now seen that we have this reality of what we were saved from. We're no longer following the course of this world. We've, no, we've been saved from the prince of the power of the air. And then it says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is a, an interesting expression in light of what we saw all throughout chapter 1, that we've been adopted as children of God. We now have 
God as our father because of what was done in Christ. But here we have this idea of the children of unbelief. John Calvin, in his commentary, explains just a little bit of what this whole idea of sons of disobedience is all about. He says, By children of disobedience, according to a Hebrew idiom, they're meant to be obstinate persons. Unbelief is always accompanied by disobedience. So that is the source, the mother of all stubbornness. Look at that again. What causes us to be disobedient? Disbelief. If we don't take God at his word, we're prone to to overstep his commandments. We forget that what he's telling us to do is for our own best interest. For the spiritually dead, there's no obedience to God because there's no belief in him. His word is mocked. The signs that declare what is trespassing are, are being actively taken down in society around us. But that disobedience is because of disbelief. But don't forget, the reason Paul is telling us all of this is because we didn't believe either. The whole purpose of this is to help remind us what it is that we've been saved from. Verse 3, Paul continues on and he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, there's a lot of different views out there about who's we, who's you, who's us, who's I. We talked about this and and made a few remarks. This is a a hard way to understand scripture when we come at it and we were looking at it in English and and not in the original Greek and we're all kind of learning these languages. But what I can tell you is that in verse one, he says, and you, and we've established that's the Jews and that's the Gentiles and now we get a we. And and what I would say is that that Paul is including himself in this we. Paul's saying, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Remember what Paul was before he was writing these beautiful, God-centered, Christ-centered epistles? A blasphemer. He was insolent. He hated God. He had profound disbelief in who Jesus was, which caused him to disobey And so Paul is now lumping himself in this. And this is important for us as believers in Jesus Christ. We we have to remember that we were once like that. Now, if you're having a hard time with identifying with all this, if, if you don't believe that that you are spiritually dead, if you can't remember a time that you are spiritually dead you might still be dead. You might check for a a spiritual pulse. Do you know what it is that God saved you from? Do you know that it was God who who drew near to you in Christ to save you? I want to talk to some of the the younger people in in our church. There's various sizes around this church. For the Ephesians, they had a dramatic testimony. Some of them were practicing witchcraft and sorcery, and they had to burn their books as a public testimony to what they left behind. Paul himself has to remind himself and tell others, I used to persecute the church. I was a blasphemer. He had this dramatic testimony. But for for some of you young people, you may have been born in this church, born in a Christian family. But I have to tell you, you were born dead. 
Spiritually, had it not been for, for Christ, you would have no ability to draw near to God. If you think it's, it's, you don't have this remarkable story of transformation, know that God does and will transform you through the power of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on and he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I don't need to spend a lot of time on this because we could pretty much figure out what these are. These are what come most naturally to us. What pleases ourselves? I've said this before, but a small child when he's first born isn't very concerned about mom and dad's sleep. Nestor and Sasha are getting nervous all over again. <laughs> They're not concerned with mom and dad's marital connection, right? They, they, the world revolves around them. They need that new life in Christ. And as a church, we, we pray for each of you as parents that you would clearly communicate the gospel to the young people under your care. That God would call them to himself, that he would quicken their hearts through what Jesus has done. Paul goes on to say, and he talks about the desires of the body and the mind, and that's what we were enslaved to. We are by nature children of wrath. What a horrific term. What a, what a terrible term. We like the idea that we're adopted children of God, but now we've got to deal with this term wrath. I came to church today to hear about God being love. Wasn't really ready for this wrath part. What is this all about? Scripture tells us clearly that we have one of two fathers. We either have as our father, God, made adopted sons through Christ Jesus, or by nature, our enemy is that guy we talked about earlier, Satan. 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, John writes, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Those are scathing words. Those are words that, that ought to cause us some fear and some trepidation. If you're here this morning and you don't understand that you are a child of wrath, understand what happens in verse four. You see how I mentioned this is like a, a musical peace, the music goes dark and heavy and somber. We're left in a place where we're reminded of what God brought us from, for those of us who are believers. We're reminded and, and informed of our dire situation without Christ. We're dead in our sins and our trespasses. We're, we're following our nature. We're deceived by a spiritual adversary. But then the song goes silent. And with resounding, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Aren't those precious words after hearing about his wrath? We were, we would be children of wrath, 
but God, being rich in mercy. Throughout chapter one, we got the word riches a few times. We got immeasurable riches, Ephesians 1, 7. If we refresh our memories there, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. But now, Paul changes the words around on this bit. And he tells us, God being rich in mercy. Keep in mind, Paul is talking to those who understand the riches that are theirs in Christ Jesus, and he's reminding them of the rags that they came from. They've been made alive in Christ. They've been given the riches of God. But before, destitute. God being rich in mercy. And I want to give you this as a, as a definition of mercy. Mercy, we know this already, right? Is not being given what we do deserve. What do we deserve? God's wrath, eternal separation from God. But God in his mercy, he didn't give us what we deserved. Instead, he gave what we deserved to Christ Jesus. Paul in his letter to the Colossian church summarizes this really well in verse 13 of chapter two. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, forgiving all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, the eternal God came in human form, condescended, and submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. What a paradox. An eternal God would, would come in human form and surrender his, his life and experience death as humans do. But he took up his life again. And because of that, we can be made alive in Christ. But you see, the important thing is that in Christ giving his life, he paid the price for us. It talks there about the legal record. All of the, the charges against us, Jesus paid it all. In our place, in our stead. So when, when Paul sings, sings this out, he says, but God being rich in mercy understands that Christ paid the price for us. He paid the consequences of our sin. And then Paul moves on and he says, because of the great love with which he loved us. See, this is the part we like, right? We like to talk about God's love, but we cannot understand God's love unless we understand how specifically he manifests this to us. So I got two easy verses for you. This one's a, a, an easy one for you to do, especially for parents uh, as you disciple your kids. How do we know of, of God's love? And there's two verses. The first one is John 3.16, which we all know, Right? And to make it really easy, we also have 1 John 3.16, okay? So just add another one in there, you've got it, right? So John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And 1 John 3.16 follows along the same lines, and it says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Isn't that amazing? John 3.16 says God sent his son. And 1 John 3.16 says his son laid down his life for us. Those two verses together, that is the embodiment of Christ's love for us. 
Because of his great love, he did this on our behalf. Paul continues on. He can't say enough of God's grace and of God's mercy. And he carries on and he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses. So this is a remarkable statement. I began by saying, because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, we can't draw near to God. But conversely, because of our sinful dead state, God would not have been able to draw near to us. I read through Numbers chapter 19 this week, a remarkable passage that explains in intricate detail what human beings are supposed to do when in the presence of another dead human being. Stay away. Seven days. You're unclean. Don't go near dead bodies. This is wired into us pretty, pretty innately, right? When we, having been in a country where homicides were somewhat frequent, you, as soon as the first responder comes, they, they cover the body with a sheet. Perhaps we've lost a loved one and we know that we make haste to remove the dead body. We don't want to be around it. That's how, that's how God wired that into us. What is dead is, is, is unclean, it's impure. For that reason, God who is holy, God who is pure, couldn't draw near to us. So he did that through the perfect plan of sending his son, Jesus. He drew near to us. Emmanuel, God with us. So you see that? We could not draw near to God because of our sin, and he would not draw near to us because of our sin, because of our spiritual death. But he's rich in mercy. And because of his love, he did that with which doesn't even make sense, right? It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You see, this is only possible because Christ was the first fruits from among the dead. When, when he was raised up, when that tomb was empty, that guarantees for us this new spiritual life. We consider the Lord Jesus in his interchange with Nicodemus. You must be born again. Nicodemus, what do you mean born again? Jesus says, no, I'm not talking about physical born again. I'm talking about spiritual born again. You need to be born in that you would have new life. And that's what Christ has done for us, given us new life. Paul goes on to say, even when you were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So if mercy is not giving us what we do deserve, and grace is giving us then what is undeserved, the full merits of Jesus Christ credited to our account. Because of that, we are raised up with him. We'll see more of this next week as we understand that we've been raised up and that we've been seated with him in the heavenly places. We have been given authority. We have been given the promise of an eternal inheritance that is imperishable. That's what we've been promised. But all of that, the whole reason Paul begins this, this discourse this way is to remind us that it is not from us. It's not like we met God part way. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And he did that for us. Church is important that we take stock of that which he saved us from. And it's important that we take stock of that which he has saved us for. 
that the name of the Lord Jesus would be extolled. And as Sean read from Ezekiel 37, that you will know that I am the Lord. He has done this new work of new life, not only for our benefit, but for the praise of his glorious grace. I hope we sing that one again next week. For the praise of his glorious grace. That's why he does all of this. It's for our good, yes, but it's ultimately for his glory. So where does that leave us? We should be rejoicing by this point, right? We got past the, the dirge part of the, the sermon there. We got past the wrath because of what Christ has done for us. But now what? We've been given this new life. What does that mean for us? Let's go to the book of Colossians again. Now as a, as a body of believers, we're given some instructions on what we're supposed to do with this new life. Our new life is supposed to now draw attention and give glory to Christ. Starting at verse 1 of Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So quit with the passions of your body and of your mind. Seek the things that are above, church. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Isn't that interesting? You were spiritually dead before, and now, as spiritually alive, we're going to put to death what remains of that sin nature. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Isn't that interesting how Paul explains that putting to death the sin that is in us affects the whole body of believers? He says, don't lie to one another. You put off the old self. Put on the new self. As Christ has, has given us new life, we're now called to mortify the sin that remains in us. Put it to death. And I want to end this morning's message with uh, the, the last chapter of the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. John gives us some precious reassurance of all the promises that Paul has just told us of. He's going to tell us again of what we have been rescued from, what we have been saved from, and gives us insurance, assurance. 1 John 5, starting at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, referring to Jesus, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal God. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the promise we have. God protects us from the evil one. God has given us understanding. God has given us eternal life. He is the true God. He has given us eternal life. Rejoice in that. Remember what God has saved us from. And he saved us for himself 
and for the renown of his name. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the sobering reminder of that which we've been saved from. Thank you, Lord God, that you have breathed new life into us like the dry bones. You have replaced our our heart of stone with the heart of flesh, and we praise you for that. Thank you that you have quickened our spirits and given us new life. Father God, I, I pray that as a group of the redeemed, that we would be quick to tell others what you have done on our behalf. May we speak and praise your name because of the the changes that you brought in our lives. God, will you continue to, through your Holy Spirit, through your word, and through this body of believers, sanctify us. Help us to put to death any sin that remains and that we would faithfully seek after you. May we be a people that bring you honor and glory this week. May you strengthen our resolve by reminding us, Lord God, what you have done for us. It's all because of your grace, all because of your love, and all through your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.